Dear Heavenly Father, what a wonderful night. What a gracious night, Father. Gathered with friends, with the family. All of us, Father, part of your family. And therefore, Father, all of us part of one family, the children of God. Thank you, Father, for the gift of faith as it brought us to know you and brought us into this family. And thank you, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, we bring a hunger for your word and we are able to to feed that hunger, Father, tonight, sitting before you as the word is open before us, knowing that you delight to reveal yourself to those who dedicate themselves to your word. Father, the thing that I'm reminded of as I study, and I, I trust, Father, this is common to all those who call you Father, that as I open your word, Father, I am always mindful of how amazingly powerful it can be in our lives if we simply give ourselves over to it. It never ceases to amaze me, Father, the connections I find and the reinforcement that you've placed there for me and for others and how it works so perfectly to demonstrate your character and your love and yet also your justice your demand for obedience, your expectation, Father, that we would carry the truth not just in our words but in our actions. So much, Father, is there waiting for us in the words. So often, Father, we turn to it last, not first. So often, Father, the questions that drive us every day to seek answers drive us away from your word when in fact it should be the place we go to first and never leave. And What a gracious opportunity, Father, it is to be back in your word tonight to know that whatever reason we had in coming may not be the reason you had in bringing us. and We would prefer, Father, to know your reason above our own. So open our hearts, Father, open our minds. Lead me in my teaching, Father, so that it is your word spoken and not mine. And in all we do, Father, let us be devoted to a knowledge of you, a love for you, and a love for the world, Father, that you desire to bring to know you. And in all these things, may we bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 22. Tonight we're going to begin our study of the trial of the man we know as Jesus of Nazareth. As I mentioned last week, there are actually three distinct trials in Scripture for Jesus on this night. In total, it is a trial, but in reality, it's actually three different trials. There are two separate religious trials that take place in this evening, conducted by the Jewish leadership. And then there is a civil trial separate from the religious trials conducted by the Roman authorities, by the Roman leadership. But in fact, if we go to look at it in in even more detail than that, it's true to say that the civil trial is actually itself three pieces or three parts. So you could argue that when we get to the civil trial in chapter 23, it itself can be broken down into three different scenes. The entire process probably began in the last hours of Wednesday night as we've already studied, the Last Supper, as we call it, or that Passover meal was conducted after sundown on Wednesday, leading to a Wednesday night, early Thursday morning, you know, over the night hours, uh, a trial process, concluding early on Thursday morning with Christ's crucifixion beginning about 9 a.m. Thursday and concluding at about 3 p.m. We'll study through that process, of course, but for now we're on the evening events, following the Passover meal, following his arrest, Even more striking than the complexity of this process of these multiple trials in multiple locations, it's even more striking to consider how short a period of time it all takes place. Somewhere before midnight it begins, and by sunrise he's finished with the trial process. And in that short period of time, he's seen two different high priests, two different leaders within the Roman uh, authorities, 
and been tried at least three separate times. It's a remarkable series of events in just a short span. So it should also be obvious to us as we begin this study that if we aren't careful in our observations of the text and of what the writers tell us, particularly Luke, of course, but also the other gospel writers, then we're going to easily miss some of the details of this event and probably even confuse some of the details. So we're going to have to be careful. In fact, though we left off in verse 63 last week of chapter 21, in order to get some of the details correct, I'm going to take you back a few verses. Now, I don't need to repeat everything we've done before, but I want to bring your attention to one verse that we read earlier last week before we completed last week's teaching. It's verse 54. And in verse 54 of chapter 22, there was a very important, although passing, detail in the way Luke presents his narrative. Luke 22:54 reads, Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. Now, Luke at that point launches off into a discourse essentially focused on Peter and on his denials of Christ. So the only mention Luke gives to the first place Jesus goes after his arrest is this mention here in verse 54. The first place he's led after his arrest in the garden is to the house of the high priest, we're told. This is the place where Luke sets the scene of Peter's denial. And if Luke's gospel were the only gospel we had, then we would never really know which house he was at in this moment. Because in his day, in the day Jesus walked the earth in this time, there were actually two high priests of Israel reigning in Israel. To know this, you have to understand some of the history of how Rome came into Judea and took over that land. When Rome rode into town, so to speak, a few decades before Christ's birth, and they took control of Jerusalem, they permitted the Jews to maintain their system of religious leadership. It's interesting if you study Roman history, particularly the way the, the Roman Empire conquered foreign lands and foreign cultures, they made a point in every case to mandate that the culture they dominated over would change their religious views and their religious structure and their religious practices so as to come into conformance with Roman thought and Roman behavior and Roman practice. And that included, for example, declaring that Caesar was Lord and worshiping before some of the, Jew, uh, before some of the Roman pagan gods and sacrificing meat to those gods and eating in meals that were dedicated to those gods and so on and so forth. They did this in every culture they conquered but one. For the entire time that the Roman culture, the, the Roman Empire existed, they made one exception to their expectation in that regard and that one exception applied to the nation of Israel. And it was really one of self-preservation for the Romans, because unlike every other culture they'd ever dealt with, the Jews were so stiff-necked that they would rather spill their blood in the streets of Jerusalem than give in to the Roman demands for those kinds of changes to their culture. So merely to keep the peace, the Romans said, all right, you can have your own systems of worship so long as you keep the peace and obey and pay the taxes and stay underneath the authority of the Roman governor." So it was essentially a dual system, one set up so that the Roman authorities maintained ultimate leadership, ultimate control, but they allowed a sort of underground system of judicial uh, control from a religious perspective to exist within the Jewish culture. That's how unique the Jewish culture was in the Roman Empire. When they first rode into town at the time that they conquered, about, AD, or about B.C. 63, they allowed this high priest, who was the senior most member of Jewish leadership, to retain the title and to retain the authority that was provided to him under the law. But that leadership had to support Roman rule. 
So that Jewish leader, that high priest, the Sanhedrin, and all the leaders around that high priest had to be willing to give in to Roman law and to Roman authority when they expected it. A man named Annas was high priest in Israel at the time of Jesus' birth, or a little after Jesus' birth, about A.D. 7 through A.D. 14. He, and for reasons we don't know, or at least reasons I couldn't find out, Annas was deposed by the Roman governor. So either he didn't go along with something the Roman governor wanted, or they butted heads one too many times, but for some reason this man Annas was deposed. The Roman governor said, you're not high priest anymore, I'm taking you out of that position, and I'm putting somebody else into that position. So the Roman governor removed Annas in A.D. 14, and this act, as you might imagine, upset the Jews of that day. They, they weren't very pleased with the fact that the Romans were trying to upset their order. And so, in order to lessen the sting of that decision, the governor put one of Annas's sons into the position of high priest in place of Annas, which had two effects. First, it did seem to lessen the sting of the Romans changing out who was high priest, because reality was that by that day, in many cases, the high priest simply uh, was succeeded by his own children in any event, so it wasn't unprecedented for that to happen. The second reason it lessened the sting was that Annas was still effectively in control from behind the scenes. In many ways, Annas could still affect his control through the culture by the fact that he could tell his son what he wanted, and his son would be obligated to give his father's opinion a great deal of weight. So Annas was succeeded by his son. That son, for reasons I don't know as well, was quickly succeeded by another of Annas's sons. And then ultimately, a third person took over, and that man was Caiaphas, who was Annas's son-in-law. So Annas is succeeded by one son, then another son, finally by his son-in-law. This whole time, Annas is still alive and living in Jerusalem. So at the point of Jesus' crucifixion here, in about A.D. 32, Annas is alive, and the high priest of Israel, according to Roman rule, was Caiaphas, who was Annas' son-in-law. But now, to the Jew, a high priest served for life. And they really couldn't care less what the Romans thought. So to the Jew, Annas was still the high priest. What it left, though, in this culture was this strange dynamic, where the culture wanted to honor Annas as the high priest, but in official terms, they had to give honor to Caiaphas or they would have upset the Roman authorities. So in a sense, they had dual high priests. They had to give them both some measure of honor and respect within the culture. But they did it in a very particular way, in a very certain way, not so as to make clear where they saw the real high priest, who they believed truly held the title. And this is what they did in the night of Jesus' own crucifixion. On the night of his trial, he was actually tried by both high priests beginning with Annas. But if they were going to go to the Roman authorities and seek a charge against Christ and to seek a penalty in the form of the death penalty, then they're still going to have to go through Caiaphas on the way. Otherwise, they wouldn't have honored the Romans for who they had placed in the position of power. So with that long background, what we see taking place here in chapter 22 of Luke is a passing mention of the fact that he's being taken to the house of Annas. We know that it was to Annas' house he goes because of John's gospel. In John chapter 18, verse 12, we hear this. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest this year. So John makes very clear the order and the relationship between those two men. So as we look at the scene in Luke's gospel, we've begun at Annas' house. This is the house where the first trial takes place. 
Luke, as you notice, when we read through the verses at the end of chapter 22 last week, you notice that Annas' trial is not mentioned. Luke mentions the house, but then he quickly transitions to a description of Peter's denial. So again, if all we had was Luke's gospel, we'd have no description of what happened in Annas' house. Those descript- that description, those details are provided by John again. John 18:19 says this, The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So John gives us that picture of what happened in that home. At this point, you're beginning to see some of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And in several ways, Jewish law had a very long list of rules associated with how to conduct an arrest, how to proceed through a trial, how to arrive at a verdict. And all of those rules were scrupulously followed under Jewish law. I mean, no different than the way they would scrupulously apply every other little law that they had come up with. The laws surrounding the judicial system in in the days of of Jesus' crucifixion were very specific. And the demands were very high. And just like our law today, they they existed largely to protect the rights of the accused. I think, in my experience, it's often the case that people tend to think of what America has done, the United States has done, in its existence as somehow singular. That, you know, until we came along, no one had a decent system of justice. Or until we came along, no one understood how to protect the rights of the accused. Or no one understood religious freedom or speech freedom, etc. To some extent, that's true. We may have perfected, in some extent, to some extent, some of those ideals in, in one sense or another. But we were hardly the originators of them. And in Jewish law, there were tremendous protections or safeguards against somebody being falsely accused or falsely judged in a trial. For example, some of those rules included that no arrest could be the byproduct of a bribe. But, of course, Judas is bribed by the very people who arrested Jesus. So there's a a rule they've broken. No steps of the criminal justice system could take place after sunset. But, of course, this entire trial takes place at night. Judges and the members of the Sanhedrin could not participate in the arrest if they were going to be the judges in the trial. But we know from the description we've already read both in Luke and in John that there were members of the Sanhedrin present at the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's another violation of their law. All trials must be conducted in public. And if it were to be a Sanhedrin trial, the Sanhedrin trial could only be conducted in the temple compound itself. Here we see trials being conducted in private homes, outside the public eye. There had to be two or three witnesses, according to Deuteronomy, against anyone who was going to be tried on the charge that demanded the death penalty. And the testimony of those witnesses had to be in perfect agreement. Here we're going to see that these witnesses testify in terribly inconsistent ways. In fact, it's a real struggle to find anyone who will say the same thing twice against Jesus. The accused was not allowed to testify against himself. In our law, you have the option to testify against yourself, but you're not required. Under Jewish law, you couldn't testify against yourself. You weren't even allowed to. And you certainly could not be condemned on the basis of your own words alone. And in this case, we're going to see Jesus is compelled to testify, and his verdict is solely the result of what he says. 
We're told that the high priest is forbidden to tear his garments as a function of trial, and we'll see that high priests do exactly that. The charge of blasphemy, if that's the charge against the accused, it could only be committed if the accused was found to have pronounced the very name of God. That was the only way you could be charged with blasphemy. Blasphemy was a singular kind of offense, speaking the name of God. Jesus doesn't do that, yet that's the charge by which he is accused. The trial could not be conducted on the eve of a Sabbath or of a feast day, and yet they do that here. And on and on and on. There were many others. And in every case, as those rules that I have found or researched, every case there is an obvious violation of them in the way this trial is conducted. We'll point out a few more in the text as we study through this trial. But I want you to understand that in this text already, we've studied how many of these requirements were set aside for Jesus' trial. And that's nothing new for these men. You know, if you've studied with me through Luke up to this point, you know that the the, uh, Pharisees, for example, make a professional living out of bending the rules to suit their own purposes the whole way through their life. So that the, the thought that they would do it in the course of this trial shouldn't surprise anyone in here. The purpose of this trial was to establish whether or not Jesus had violated any of the Jewish religious laws or rules. Remember, this is a religious trial. They're looking at what Jesus has done vis-a-vis Jewish law, Jewish rules, not Roman. So if he's against any of the Jewish law, any of the Jewish rules, then they could hold him out for a verdict of guilty. As John describes it in the verses we've already read, the, the, the high priest Annas questions Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching, about his disciples and about his teaching. The goal here is real simple. They are looking for anything in Jesus' life or in his instructions to his disciples that could serve as a basis for a charge. This is a fishing expedition. I hope you realize that as you look at the way this trial is constructed, there is no charge leading to the trial. There is a trial with the intent to find basis for a charge. By the way, that violates one of the Jewish laws for how a trial is to be conducted. The judge cannot be the same as the prosecutor. In other words, no judge in a trial can also be the one who names the accusation against the accused, who defines the uh, accusation or the charge. But the charge that eventually comes against Christ is given by the high priest himself. Another violation. Of course, the other reason they ask about the disciples is because he wants to know who these men are so that if there is a charge brought against Christ, he can quickly move into uh, charging and prosecuting any of the disciples along with him because they're trying to stamp out not just Jesus, but the whole movement around him. So they're also interested in the disciples for that reason. Then we saw Jesus' answer to Annas. Now, you're going to find at times as we look through the trial that there's times Jesus speaks and there's times he doesn't. You know, there's a quote out of the Psalms that said he is led to the slaughter like a sheep, silent. And that is true, but it is not to say Jesus never spoke. Because what it's referring to is not necessarily whether words came out of his mouth, but to what extent and in what way and what was the effect. You know, if you draw the analogy a little deeper, sheep are not silent. But as they are led to slaughter, you do not see them protesting. You don't see them backing out of the stall. You don't see them recognizing what is coming and rebelling against it. They, they are, for all per, intents and purposes, ignorant of what lies ahead. They walk into it blindly. That's not the analogy we make with Christ, obviously. It's quite the opposite. He knew exactly what he was doing and did it willingly. But it is analogous in the fact that he did not, did not rebel against it. He did not hold back. He did not uh, try to get out of it. He went at it willingly, voluntarily. But it is not the same thing as saying he went into it with no words coming out of his mouth. 
The Scriptures make clear enough that he did speak. His answers here show the failure of Annas to follow their own rules. That's what he's saying here. Remember, these men aren't stupid. They know what they're doing. And Jesus knows that they know. They were the ones who were supposed to do the investigation. They were the ones who were supposed to produce credible evidence to support a charge. They were the ones who were supposed to bring the charge into the room. And then there was to be a trial. And they're asking these questions, and Jesus says, Why are you asking me? Why don't you go out and ask the people I taught? Why don't you go out and do your homework? Why don't you go out and do the investigation that should have been done before you bring a charge? That's his critique of them. And that's why he refuses to answer. And in retaliation for speaking that truth, the officers of the high priest were told, Strike Jesus. And then, you know, as well as I do, there's going to be more mistreatment to follow. This is just the beginning And Annas quickly grows frustrated. It's pretty obvious he doesn't get anywhere with Jesus. It's all obvious he doesn't have anything to bring into the moment himself. No accusation. No proof of any kind. And so very quickly he sends Jesus to Caiaphas. And that ends the first trial. Now it's hardly a trial by any strict definition of a trial as it was required under Jewish law. It was a kangaroo court. It was a conspiracy. It was an attempt to undermine and trap Jesus. And essentially nothing was gained by the effort. Jesus is certainly not exonerated. That's not his point in being there. And neither is he convicted of anything. It simply wasted time. And now he moves on to Caiaphas. The way they're going about this process almost makes you wonder why they bothered to go through the process. You ever thought about that? The way they're approaching it makes you wonder why they went through it. I mean, if their intention here is to bring him before the Roman authorities and bring a charge against him so as to convince Rome to persecute him, to to put him to death, and knowing that Rome couldn't care less about Jewish law, why go to the effort? Especially in light of the fact that they're not even following it the way they're supposed to. It almost seems like they're wasting their own time. What is their purpose in taking this particular approach? Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees? Not very long ago, in fact, just a few chapters back. He says, they longed for what? They sought after what? They loved the esteem of men. They desired the esteem of men rather than God. You know, it's not enough that they would do what they would do or that they would accomplish what they desired to accomplish. Integral to their goal was that they would do it in such a way so as to appear righteous to the public. To appear as if they were righteous for God, zealous for God's law. A careful uh, inspector of people's lives so as to judge right from wrong and then holding people accountable for their wrong. They wanted the honor that comes with righteousness, though they did not have the measure of it in their lives. Because remember, if they had taken this man, Jesus, straight to the Roman authorities without any trial, without any effort to go through it, as as much of a sham as it is, if they just walked straight up to Pilate and said, here's a man we don't like, we think you should put him to death, they may have succeeded, for all we know, but they would never have been able to convince the average Jew that it was done properly. They would have lost the esteem of men. They would have run a counter to their purpose in how they lived their lives. So they set up the appearance of propriety, of doing things the right way, without the substance of it, and therefore they gain what they want, while at the same time time, trying to have their cake and eat it too by maintaining the esteem of those who look at them from afar, from the public. Appearances were more important to them than truth. At this point in Luke's Gospel, which is about verse 63, which is where we really left off last week, about verse 63, Luke jumps to the very end of the second trial. And this is where the details become confusing if you don't see the whole picture across all four Gospels. We've seen in verse 54, Luke mentioned that they were led to the home of the high priest. Then a discussion of Peter and his denials. Then in 63, 
you jump to the moment at the very end of the second trial with Caiaphas. That's how Luke presents it. And so if you read it real quickly, you might assume that really it's all the same high priest and it's all really the same moment. But we know from looking at the other Gospels that's not true. So we're going to take some time here. I don't do this very often. If you know, as I've studied through Luke, I really try to avoid going outside the text of Luke as much as possible, principally because it's this text and this text alone that we're here to study. But when you look at the Gospels, it's so easy to see the parallels and to want to go you know, examine them and bring them into the study. And I, I'll do that on occasion, but I think in this case, as you study the trial itself, given how Luke approaches it in such a passing way, the only fair way we're going to get a good understanding of the trial is if we go into the other Gospels to some extent. So tonight, more than maybe most nights, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at John, Mark, and Matthew to understand the full picture of this trial. Because at this point, Luke just drops off the map and goes straight to the end. We begin with one verse out of Mark 14. Because from John's Gospel, we've already learned that Jesus was ushered from Annas' home to Caiaphas' home for the second phase of the trial. But we need to understand that from what we learn in Mark, Mark 14, verse 53, that we're not just going to the home of Caiaphas and Caiaphas by himself. In this home, Caiaphas has called together the Council of Elders, which is another way of saying the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin, the ruling members of the nation of Israel, religious leaders, have all gathered together in Caiaphas' home. The Sanhedrin, if you didn't know this already, is a collection of 71 men. We often hear it referred to as 70, but in reality it was 71 because the high priest himself was part of the Sanhedrin and he was the 71st member. So it was 70 men plus the high priest. It consisted of the chief priests, uh, the elders, the scribes, and then the high priest himself. And this ruling body over the nation of Israel was like the Supreme Court and Congress and the President all rolled together. It was a single group that had ruling ruling authority within the nation. We know from other places in the Gospel, and I won't go there for the sake of time, but we know in other places of the Gospel that at least a couple of members of the Sanhedrin were absent that night. Most notably, you might know Joseph of Arimathea, who was the one who was gracious enough to give Christ a burial place, And we're told in John's description of that moment that this was a man who agreed with Jesus' teaching and disagreed with the Sanhedrin's judgment. And if this man had been there, we can presume he would not have voted to convict. So it's presumably a good assumption that he was not there the night of the trial. So Annas' home had merely been a courtesy stop for Annas out of respect for his role in the society. But this is going to be the place where the real religious trial takes place. In other words, I don't believe anyone expected that no matter what Annas did with this guy, with Jesus that that would be the end of the story. In fact, I'd read a little bit into the Bible here, a little bit kind of reading between the lines. Annas is pretty old by now. You didn't become high priest in your teens. You you became high priest as a mature man to begin with. And here we are a good 25 years, 20 years after he had been deposed as high priest. So it's, it's old man Annas at this point. You know, fumbling around his house, a little bit of respect from the culture because of his prior role, but... They don't really care much for what he says or thinks anymore. In fact, he probably doesn't have much say. He's really a token at this point. And they do a flyby. They do a drive-by at his house, let him see Jesus. He asks him a few questions, and then he's sent on to Caiaphas. That would be my impression as I read the text. And so he arrives at Caiaphas' home, the Sanhedrin having been assembled. And the best evidence, in fact, the only evidence that they could possibly use here against Christ in order to achieve the end they have in mind are credible witnesses. 
They don't have Jerusalem CSI. You know, they don't have DNA testing. They don't have you know, video camera evidence. They, they, really, in that day and age, the only credible evidence you could imagine in trial for the purpose of a death penalty case would be a credible witness and more than one. That's really all they have to hang their hat on. And so this trial at the Sanhedrin is all about collecting any man they could find who would dare have anything to say about Jesus, who was willing to come to trial and testify in any manner about something he did wrong. So this is a free-for-all. Open the doors and let anyone in, and hopefully they'll have something we can hang them on. That's what's about to happen. Mark, in his chapter, goes on in verse 55 to relate this moment, how this went about. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Even, not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. If you go look at some cross-references out of Matthew that we won't go to tonight, Matthew, when he relates the same moment, I believe he describes the testimony that was given by other witnesses about this same moment. And you can see how they disagree. Read this one. Go look at Matthew. Read theirs. It's the same topic. I will destroy the temple and rebuild it. But it's said in different ways so as to not be consistent. And it's a good example of what was probably coming up. You know, as Mark describes the scene, this entire council, as he begins those verses I read, the entire council, he says, the whole council, was looking for witnesses against Jesus. And yet those witnesses disagreed consistently with one another. That, those two facts alone bring out two more violations of Jewish trial law. The trial law said, though all members of the council, as I said earlier, may argue for acquittal, not all members of the Sanhedrin are permitted to argue for guilt. It's an interesting rule within their law, isn't it? If all 70 men, or in this case, all who are present, take the side of the prosecutor, the trial is considered a false trial, a mistrial. Somebody on the Sanhedrin has to take the position of arguing for Jesus. And the reason they do that, of course, is because anything, anytime you get 70 Jewish men who agree, it's considered an automatic conspiracy. I'm not joking. That's literally the way they viewed it. They viewed it as literally impossible that 70 Jewish men could all come to the same opinion about anything. And so if all 70 men agreed to the same exact thing, something was wrong. That was Jewish law. The third rule they're, they're violating here is that these witnesses against Jesus had to confirm each other's testimony, had to be perfect in their detail. And if they're not, they're not considered credible. Another point in passing, the accused couldn't be condemned on the basis of his own testimony. So in the absence of the witness's testimony being perfect, they're going to turn to Jesus here now and seek his own testimony against himself. The last-ditch effort. You can see what these men are doing. I mean, we've said this already. They've canvassed the crowds that followed Jesus in that past week, and they basically said, did you hear him say anything at all that might be wrong, that we might be able to use against him? And they might, you know, somebody heard Jesus. Remember the scene when we studied it as he walks out of the temple at the end of chapter 20, beginning of chapter 21? And he says to his disciples as they're admiring the temple, he says, I tell you, I, you know, this temple will be destroyed and I'll rebuild it in three days, right? And they all wonder what he meant. And he doesn't give them the answer to what he meant until they reach the Mount of Olives. Remember that? And then the description, the detail around that comment is provided in private to his disciples in the Mount of Olives. So the public only heard that early provocative statement. They never got the benefit of the detailed teaching to explain it. And it naturally led to these kinds of misunderstandings. People who ran in saying, 
oh, I have a charge against him, disrespect of the temple. And that was, in fact, a Jewish law. You could not show disrespect to the temple. So I have a charge against him. He disrespected the temple. How did he do that? Well, this is what I heard him say. And somebody else heard it a little different. Somebody else heard it a little different. And it wasn't enough, though. It wasn't enough to really hang on, to be able to take this man before Pilate, even to these men who really weren't interested in the rule of law. It shows you how the conspiracy worked. I find it ironic that in the midst of these proceedings, which were designed to find fault in Jesus according to the Jewish law, the men conducting the, the proceedings themselves were violating that very law in everything they were doing, and yet Jesus stood before them sinless, doing nothing wrong the whole time. Isn't that irony amazing? Even as they go about trying to find reason to convict him, he's the innocent party in the middle of it, and they're violating their own law the whole way through. From here we go to Matthew's Gospel to follow the details of the trial through to the end of the time in Caiaphas' hands. Matthew 26.62 picks it up at about the point where Mark drops off. Matthew 26.62 says this, The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Now, in the verse immediately prior to the one I just read in Matthew, that's where you find that witness saying, He will tear down this temple and rebuild it. So immediately after he's heard this testimony, these inconsistent stories, the high priest says, why don't you answer? What are these men saying about you? What do you have to say for yourself? Then in verse 63, we're told, Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you've now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. So after the testimony of the witnesses that we've already mentioned, the high priest turns to Jesus and he says, Respond to those charges. Respond to those charges. And so here again, he's breaking a rule of Jewish trial law. A defendant couldn't be obligated to respond. He wasn't even allowed to respond in defense of himself or in, in, to make any statement which could be used against him. And then we see Jesus exercise the very right under Jewish law that he should have exercised. He's not required to say anything under Jewish law, so he stays silent. This leads the high priest... In fact, I want to make a point in passing here. This man went to the, to the grave sinless, never having violated the law, and in this respect, he keeps even man's rules around the law. For if he had said anything in defense of himself, remember, the law says he's not allowed to do it. Not just that he has the option. He can't. And he doesn't because of that. I believe here's the case where Jesus is staying silent so as to respect the Jewish rules of the day and be in conformance with them, as much as it is simply because he doesn't have any desire to want to placate these men or play into their game. This leads the high priest to place Jesus under an oath. That's what he did here. The word adjure, exorcizo, is where we get from that same Latin root, exhort. Exorcizo, it literally means to administer an oath. So what the man said was equivalent to what you and I would do in a court of law when we ask someone to put their hand on the Bible and raise their hand. He's done that to Jesus effectively by saying, I adjure you, I put you under oath, where now you have an honor to, at stake here. You have an honor to protect in how you respond. And he says, tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? That's a fascinating statement coming from the high priest. Think about it for just a minute. Did he say, I adjure you. Did you say you were going to tear down the temple? No. I adjure you. 
Did you speak the name of God? I adjure you, did you tell people not to pay taxes to Caesar? I mean, you pick any of the accusations that eventually come out against him in the course of these trials. No, he says none of those things. It's an interesting statement, a fascinating statement. What caused him to ask that question? Well, simply by asking that question, I think the high priest is condemning himself. For by that question, he's admitting to a knowledge of Jesus' claims to be the Messiah, first and foremost. Now, we know he didn't accept it. I mean, I'm not saying he he believed it to be true necessarily. But the only explanation for him asking the question the way he did was that he had a knowledge of Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. And the man knew that those claims were at least credible enough that though he refused to accept it, it had been a statement that others had accepted and that put his own power at risk. I mean, let me tell you, they didn't go to this one shepherd and try people who had no legitimate claim to be the Messiah. The crackpots who may have come along in the past and said, I'm the Messiah, but had no way to prove it or show it. They didn't go to trial. They were ignored. They they were ostracized. This man had credible claims that were dangerous enough that they provoked this kind of hatred. And in the midst of the trial, the high priest says, all right, tell us once and for all, are you the Messiah? And in response, Jesus points out that the high priest himself has brought up the issue of the Messiah. That's what he means by what he says. When he says, you've said it yourself, he's saying, you're bringing this topic into the discussion means you yourself have placed it on the table. Not me. I didn't come in trying to convince you. I've never spoken to you. I didn't walk up to you with a four-page document and evidence and proof and pictures and my words recorded and so on and so forth to suggest I'm the Messiah. I just stood here silently and you said it. Why? Why bring it up? Why didn't you accuse me of being Caesar? I mean, if you're going to come up with things like that, Why not just say the most outlandish thing you can imagine? Well, because it wasn't outlandish, because you had reason to say it, because it was on your mind and maybe on your heart, and the proof has been there all along. And though you're not willing to acknowledge it, your willingness to bring it into this conversation condemns you for it. Because you will not stand in the judgment day ignorant, nor will you stand in the judgment day unconvinced. For all will know in that day who Jesus was, because he says, I will be seen in my power that day. Whether you're willing to acknowledge it now or not is irrelevant because you will one day. And the fact that you brought it into the conversation means you should have known better. You had all the evidence you needed. That's an important point for all of us to remember. There's a day appointed when God will show the entire world that Jesus is his son. Now that is not to say it hasn't been shown sufficiently already. But it is to say that there is a day when the doubt will be removed. The only question is, is the doubt removed before or after our death? For if it is removed after, it will gain us nothing. If it is removed before, it gains us all. And in the meantime, we all wait together for that day. The high priest here, we're told, responds by tearing his garment. Remember the rule? Well, there goes that one. Why do you tear a garment? It's a sign of mourning, but it's also a sign of grief or of of great stress or of, of, of just sadness in general. And in this context, it's a show intended to reflect this man's defense of God's good name. I am, I am struck by the fact that God's good name has been sullied and I am mourning that and I am distressed over it on behalf of God and His good reputation and so I show that distress by ripping my clothes. It's sort of an outward sign of how indignant I am and how distressed I am that somebody has just besmirched the good name of God. It's done for show, entirely for show, which is why it can't be done according to Jewish law. You know, in the courts of law we have today, if the defendant is accused of a particularly heinous crime, 
something that's very graphic or disturbs the conscience of those who might be in, in judgment over him, like the jury, then we'd go to great lengths to protect the sensibilities of the jury so as not to prejudice them against the, uh, against the accused. You don't show them unnecessarily graphic photos of the deceased, of the victims. You don't go into lurid details of the crime that aren't necessary to prove the crime. And the reason you do that is you don't want to inflame the jury. You don't want to get them so worked up against the accused that now they lose the rational perspective they're supposed to maintain, the objective perspective, and they're just working on emotion. And they're, now they're just determined to convict this person because they hate him so much over what they've just seen, even if the evidence doesn't suggest that he did it. So we protect that. We protect the accused against that. This is the same idea here. If the high priest is tearing his clothes in front of the Sanhedrin, uh, that's like being in a boardroom when your CEO just blows his top. Everyone's a little nervous. Everybody wants to do something to calm him down. Everybody understands this must be bad. We have a big problem here. We've got to solve and if the high priest is tearing his garments and he says, what more do you all need? He's, what do you think of him now? And everyone says, oh, he deserves death. Yeah, you're right. You're right. He deserves death. I'm not saying they didn't agree, but I'm saying that it was clearly the case that the high priest is trying to push him over the edge a little, make sure that they do agree. So that was against the rules and he didn't care. Finally, you notice that he also said here that it was blasphemy. No, it's not blasphemy. Nothing he said would constitute blasphemy. It's a charge completely unconnected to the events of the trial. And that becomes the charge they go forward with. Now, at this point, we rejoin Luke's account. Luke 22:63. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Here the irony continues. Though he was accused of blasphemy without any evidence to support it, they turn and blaspheme against him and against God's name. They mock him. And they beat him. You know, it's, we're going to see more of this, as you know, but it's really easy to pass these words by so quickly because they're written almost in an antiseptic style, very clinical way of viewing the situation. Anybody here ever been hit head-on in the face by a man swinging as hard as they can at your head? I haven't. How about this? You ever bumped your chin on like a counter or a desk on, uh, you know, accidentally or into a, you know, the car door or something, right? It kind of gave you birds for a minute and lost your bearings? I mean, that's nothing compared to someone really trying to take a smack at you hard with their fist. Think about that. And now you're blindfolded so you don't know what's coming. So you're not even able to sort of steel yourself up for it a little bit. It comes out of nowhere. This is just the beginning of what he started to experience in that moment. It's amazing he still stood by the time they were dragging him to the point. And remember, he couldn't carry his own cross. He was so debilitated by the time he reaches that point. It's a painful, severely painful experience. And remember what we taught last week. The obedience of Christ in this moment is first and foremost the fact that he doesn't run from the impending doom. When he's in the garden, when they come to arrest him, just the fact that he walked back from the Passover meal into the garden knowing that that's the one place Judas was likely to lead the authorities to find him. Because that's the only place Judas would have known to look. The fact that he set up everything so that he would be available and found and brought to justice, or injustice as it may be, is magnified by the fact that he knew what was coming and yet didn't run from it. And even now, in the midst of all this, submitting himself to it as it begins and not stopping it. I, I mean, the more I think about this, the more it amazes me. I mean, consider this. He is God. He spoke the creation into existence. I mean, a word out of his mouth is sufficient to bring the world to an end. 
is, is, is easily sufficient to bring those men to an end. To command down 10,000 angels, remember? As he says it in Matthew. He's standing there silent. He is their creator. He created them and all that the world contains, and he's standing there while they beat him. I mean, you know, your mind starts to wrap around that only to fall away very quickly and you lose it because you can't imagine how that could be true, how that could be possible, how it could even happen. You know, this is the guy who, with one word out of his mouth, he stormed the, he, he, he quieted the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and the men in the boat were amazed. You ever been on the boat and seen a storm? You know, the massive power of a storm and the distance and the sky, and you realize all the energy that's involved in that. And one, one guy in the boat next to you says a word and it all just stops. How would that hit you in the moment? This guy could do that and these men are beating him. I mean, just the, the incongruity of it for me never ceases. He's standing there amidst that. He casts out demons. He heals men. He is the deity who created every one of these men who now assaults him and he stands there patiently, quietly. If you want a biblical definition of love, begin with this moment. You know, as Jesus puts it, he says, to lay one's life down for a friend is, is love. That he would give his life for somebody, right? But it's not just in the end moment as Jesus carried it out, right? That might be the way you and I imagine it, right? Falling on the grenade in the foxhole is sort of the way a lot of us imagine the way we would do this thing, right? If I wanted to give my life for a friend, it would be, you know, I'd take a bullet for you kind of a statement. And that's fine. That's not wrong, maybe. But that's not what Jesus did. He started a process that was slow and excruciating. And at every moment along that way, he could have stopped every bit of it. You know, unlike you and I, who may have felt powerless to stop the robber or the, or the murderer, but yet we were willing to die in place of another. This man had the ability to stop the whole event, and he still went through that. It, it just never ceases to amaze me that while we were still enemies, God died for us. And then one more thought. All the while Jesus is being beaten, he's fulfilling in his dying the purpose that he came, and that was that maybe some of those who were landing the punches would one day believe in him and be saved. Some of those Roman soldiers, some of those Jewish leaders, that in the way Jesus died and in the witnesses that came after, some of those men may have turned into believers. As Paul himself said, standing by and approving of Stephen's death, you know, it haunted him the rest of his life. What about some of these men? Jesus stood there taking the blows, knowing that he had to do that if he was to save the very men who were punching him. Then the final moment of the second religious trial in Luke 22 is in 66 through 71. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. When they, then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. What's going on here? is that attempt to maintain an appearance of propriety. What they've done is waited until daybreak. Though they already arrived at the verdict in that night trial at Caiaphas' home, they waited now until daybreak so they could conduct a show trial in the proper way, in the proper place at the proper time. Not at night, but at day. Not in Caiaphas' home, but as we're told here in verse 66, they assembled in the chamber. What we mean by chamber is the temple compound, the place in the temple where Sanhedrin trials were supposed to be conducted. So they've moved it 
to the daytime. They've moved it to the right place. They've done all of the things necessary to show that the trial is being conducted according to the rules of Jewish trial law. But, of course, it's a total show because they've already conducted the trial in their own minds and they've already arrived at the proper verdict because look what they do as they move into this trial. They reenact, essentially, the core elements of the earlier trial. They skip all the early stuff. They aren't talking anymore about how he's going to tear down the temple. They aren't bringing in witnesses, in fact, at all. They go straight to the point that ended the trial at Caiaphas' home. Tell us, are you the Son of God? They believe that's sufficient cause to bring the charge of, of blasphemy. He said it once. They just expect him to say it again. And when they do, when he does, they'll just trump out, you know, trot out the charge of blasphemy again, and they'll go right back to where they were. The whole thing is a show to gain the, appearance, the, the approval of men. They ask him, "Are you the Christ?" And Jesus begins by basically saying this. This is my version. Jesus says, "Why bother? Why bother?" He says, if I were to tell you, you wouldn't believe me. You ask me, am I the Son of God? That would be my testimony, right? That's like you asking me, am I a Christian? Somebody's just opened the door for my testimony, haven't they? It's no, matter, it's no longer an issue of yes or no, black or white, answer the question. It's not just for the sake of their knowledge that I would answer, right? At that point, my reason in answering that question is not to simply give them knowledge. It's to convince them about the truth of what it means to be a Christian. I mean, that should be our response. I hope that's how you view it. If somebody opens the door for you to testify about what you believe, walk right through it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You ask me, but if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. Which is to say, the only reason I would tell you is so as to prompt faith. For it is not of any value apart from that. So if it is not sufficient, if I know in advance this is not going to produce faith, as only Jesus could know, then there's no reason for me to give you this answer. Because it couldn't possibly do anything. If, if faith isn't going to result from my testimony, then there's no point in my confession to you. Secondly, he says, if I ask you, you wouldn't answer. That's an interesting point, isn't it? If I answered your question, you wouldn't believe me anyway. And if I asked you a question, Judge, you wouldn't answer me. Now, what does he mean by that? What kind of question does the person, the witness, if you will, the accused on the stand in this case, what kind of question would he ask the judge? It's, a, it's actually a damning statement against that judge. He's basically saying that if I were to ask you what you thought about me, about what you would say about who I am, you would remain silent. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, we have to believe, knew the truth about that. It's not just that he's guessing. He knew that's exactly what would happen. So the question for us is, why would he refuse to answer? Why wouldn't he have said, no, I don't think you're the Christ. No, I don't think you're the Son of God. Why does he say that the judge, in this case the high priest, would have remained silent. Well, think about these kinds of experiences in the past as we've studied the Gospels up till now as the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes were to confront Jesus in his teaching and try to trap him, right? For example, when they're trying to trap him on, on certain issues in the temple and Jesus turns around to them and says, I'll answer you if you'll answer me. Who do, they, who do you say John was? Did his baptism come from God or did his baptism come from men? Remember that question? And how did they respond? Now, the Scripture tells us what they thought. But what did they say? Nothing. Because they reasoned in their own mind that if we say it is from God, they'll ask us why, the people will ask us why we didn't accept Him then. But if, they say, if we say it's from men, they will stone us because they all believe it was from God. So they said, we'll say nothing. And so Jesus says, because you don't answer me, I don't answer you. And we studied that when we looked at those verses. That's the same basic principle going on here. He says, if I were to ask you if I am the Son of God, you won't answer the reason you won't answer is because if you say no, then the crowd is going to be against you. 
And the last thing these men want is to have the crowd against them. Remember the esteem and the, the appearance issue again? And the reason they won't say yes is because they wouldn't accept him. So he's saying, you're going to remain silent if I put this question to you, so I'm going to remain silent to you. And then he answers plainly. He says, ask him plainly, are you the Son of God? Now, although Jesus refused to answer it the first time, I believe his purpose in ultimately going along with their question and answering it was because, remember, the purpose of submitting to this process in the first place was so that he would go to his grave. I mean, he's not playing games here. The whole reason he's allowed this process to even begin is because he anticipates its end. And he knows that by acknowledging what they want him to acknowledge, a true statement, not a false statement certainly, a true statement, but one that will incite them to go forward with their charge of blasphemy, he's accomplishing the Father's will. He's testifying to who he is, certainly, but he's also ensuring that the end will go where it's intended to go. You know, if you ever run into somebody, and I've, I've heard this on rare occasions, people who would say that, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. You know, there's nowhere in the Bible where Jesus actually claimed to be God. Take them to this verse. There are others like it, by the way, but it's not as to say that it's hard to find. But here's one for you in passing. And so he kind of senses it's time to put into the charade. He says, I am. And that leads, of course, to the charge going forward into chapter 23 in the trial before Pilate, that charge being blasphemy. Now, we, we are about the ending point for tonight. I want to do one quick set of verses out of 23 as a transition into next week. Because I want us to show you how this transition takes place and get you prepared for what we're going to look at next week. So stay with me and look just a short time longer. Verse 20, or chapter 23, verse 1. I want you to look at how this charge is brought to Pilate. It's fascinating because it reflects the duplicity of these men, of the fact that their earlier trial had nothing to do with what they were prepared to do when they went to Pilate. Verse 20, chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, saying, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. Now, at this point, we've, meet, we've reached really the early morning hours of Thursday. Okay, we've, we've had to be at the very, very beginning of daylight for them to conduct the trial in the temple. So they waited until dawn break, probably. Did their quick little show trial. I don't think that took very long. From there, they tramp him down to where Pilate was, and Pilate's ready to receive him. Now, why is Pilate ready to receive a man at the break of dawn? Is this guy an early riser? That could be, but that's not likely why he's up this early and dressed and ready to take visitors in the way he did. Pilate receives him this early because he's the governor of Judea. And normally the governor of Judea, his residence was in Caesarea. The only reason he's in Jerusalem is because for Passover, being such a hotbed time of year for the Jews, this is a time when they often would... Anyway, they got two million plus people in the city to begin with, so it's a very congested city this time of year. And it was often a time when they would see a lot of disruption, a lot of civil unrest. The Jews seem to get really upset around Passover every year. And so they would send extra military men in, extra oversight, do everything they could to keep the peace. So Pilate would routinely come down for Passover from Caesarea and spend the Passover in Jerusalem to help watch over things. So the reason he's there is to catch these kinds of guys, to be ready to receive anyone who is accused of civil unrest. He wants these guys. He wants to hear about it because he's trying to stop it before it starts. 
So his whole purpose in being there is to receive someone like a Jesus who's being accused by the Jews of stirring up trouble. And so at this point, Pilate is primed for this meeting. But look at his reaction. He all but laughs off the charge. You know, he doesn't even take a moment's more thought about it than when they say, he's the king of the Jews, and then Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, yes, I am. And he says, I don't see any reason to convict this guy. You got Jesus standing here. Jesus hasn't slept for about 36 hours at this point, presumably. He's been beaten, so he's probably bloodied up. He's probably, you know, his clothes are probably half torn, maybe. He's certainly not looking very good at this point. You know, he's been spat upon. He's, he's probably bent, half bent over from being punched, you know, in the sides or wherever he was being hit. So he's a pitiful sight, right? Pitiful sight and standing in front of Pilate. It's self-evident that even though Jesus admitted to the charge, the charge had no credibility in his eyes because the guy was pathetic. I mean, by the time they saw him, there's nothing about this man that posed any threat to the Romans, any thought that this guy is possibly going to lead an army against the Romans. You know, king in the sense of a civil king. This man had no credibility for that kind of a charge. He's pathetic. And look at the accusations. This is where I say I want you to understand that the trial they conducted at Caiaphas' house was not intended to convince Pilate of anything. Because they do not come before Pilate and say, this man is accused of blasphemy. What is blasphemy? In their law, it was dishonoring the name of God, the one true God of Jehovah, of Yahweh. Is that the God of Rome? No. Can Rome possibly persecute Jesus for blaspheming a God they don't believe exists? No. So there's no way they're going to go before Rome and say, you need to put this man to death. Why? Because he blasphemed against our God. They're going to say, what is that to me? It has no bearing on my concerns. So what they do instead is they say this man's causing civil unrest. And that's what they mean, by the way, when they say he's calling himself Christ. They don't mean it from the standpoint of the religious term Messiah. They know that Pilate doesn't even understand that term. They talk of it in terms of a civil king, as if he was to be a, uh, a zealot against Roman rule, a man trying to uh, undermine Roman rule. And that's the charge they hope Pilate will pay attention to. And Pilate looks at the guy and says, this is no credibility with me. And then the religious leaders don't just end with that, of course. We're going to look one more set of verses as we end, the last set for the night. John 18.28 shows us this. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Well, then take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said, Well, we're not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the words of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. They first bring Jesus to Pilate, just as we heard in Luke, and they have no charge, just as we saw in Luke. Now, in Luke, we hear them mentioning things like he is the Christ and he is causing unrest and he's been teaching this way since Galilee. These are just stabs in the dark. What John relates to us is at the very beginning of that conversation as Pilate comes out to meet them. Of course, they don't go into Pilate because they'd be defiled if they walked in. And they don't want to be defiled on the day before, of the Passover, before the Passover meal. So he comes out and he says, give me the charge. And that's where they don't say blasphemy for the reasons I've already mentioned. What do they say? Nothing. Look how they start the conversation. They basically say, if he wasn't worthy of punishment, we wouldn't have brought him to you. So don't bother asking me for the details. Trust us. We know this guy deserves it. We figured that out already. You know, let's not get into the details. 
That's basically what they're saying to him. Pilate, very, very perceptive. Look how he answers. He says, well, if it's by your rules and your law, then why don't you handle him under your rules and your law? Why are you getting me involved then, is his answer. And then they drop the big one on him. Then they basically give him the full picture. They say, because we can't put him to death. That's a new issue now. Because up till this moment, Pilate doesn't realize that what they're intending to do is ask for the death penalty. He doesn't know what the charge is, much less what the punishment should be. He wants to know what's going on. And up to this point, there's been nothing told to Pilate to suggest to him that the desire the Jews have is to put a man to death. All they know is there's a troublemaker and they need to help stop the trouble. But at this one moment now, Pilate has finally understood, oh, you want to put this guy to death? That's what you're seeking? That's what I'm here to help you do? And that changes everything. Because now Pilate has some more serious concerns. Because whatever this guy's done that's made the Jews so upset, they think it's worthy of death. I'm going to have to take some time and understand this problem a little better. That's how Pilate's going to respond as we look to the civil trial next week. I'll end with that last verse that may have caught you off guard. Maybe you don't quite follow what, this, what the point of it is. As John says that when, he was said, when it was said, we are not permitted to put him to death, that phrase fulfilled Scripture in that it signified what kind of death Jesus would have. How is that true? Well, remember the Jews could not put a man to death by their own law because the Romans controlled that process. The Romans reserved to themselves the right of the sword, the right of execution in that culture. If the Jews had tried to execute a man, they themselves would have been prosecuted under Roman law for taking the law into their own hands because that was not something they were allowed to do. So if Jesus was going to die an executioner's death, the only way that was going to happen was if the Romans did it. And the way the Jews would put you to death, according to their law, was by stoning. But the way the Romans put you to death was by execution on the cross. Unless you were a Roman citizen, in which case you would die by beheading, which is why Paul is beheaded, by the way. But if you weren't a Roman citizen, you got the cross. So by virtue of the fact that they admit we can't put him to death, they are fulfilling the scripture that says Jesus would die hanging on a tree on a cross and not by the traditional manner. Think about that from a Jewish perspective. That's a pretty interesting thing to know. If I had told you you're Messiah, Jew, you're you know, talking to a Jewish audience, if I had said, you know, when your Messiah comes, he's going to die, he's going to be put to death like a criminal, if you were a Jew, in the back of your mind, you immediately said, oh, he's going to be stoned one day. So you're looking for the man who will be stoned. That's your sign of who your Messiah is. But then Scripture became more specific and said, no, he's going to die on a cross. He's going to be hung on a tree, basically, is the way it's put in Scripture. That's a very strange thing to say. No man dies that way. Only the accursed, we're told by Scripture, hang on a tree. In fact, we're told that they're not allowed to hang past daybreak or the end of the day because it is considered a curse to hang on a tree. But this tells us how that prophecy would be fulfilled. It would be because he was put to death by someone outside the Jewish culture that he could fulfill that prophecy. So next week, we pick up right here, looking at the rest of the trial, specifically the trial that takes place under Roman civil law. This is a trial that takes place once with... Uh, Pilate, it's suspended and taken to Herod and then suspended again and brought back to Pilate. So in that way, it's typically seen as a three-part trial, but it's one trial under Roman law. We'll study that next week and perhaps move a bit beyond it into the early stages of the crucifixion. I hope you can join us for that. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for the time in your word as always. And Father, I thank you for the sobering memories that we have been given out of the scripture of what your son did on those fateful hours as he went to the cross in obedience to your word and to your will. 
Father, we are called to be Christ-like. We know that by Your Word. To be molded into the image of Your Son. And in so many ways, Father, we think of that as the obedience we live and our words, our speech, and, and our way of loving and serving others. All of that being true, Father. It is no less true, Father, that we would serve You and witness to Christ in how we treat our enemies. For it is by Christ's example in how He lived and in how He faced His enemies and in how He faced the death that You set before Him that we have the ultimate example of how a Christian, Father, is to face those same circumstances. Loving our enemies, Father, even to the point of death. For in doing so, Father, our death may bring far more to know You in truth than anything we might do in our life, if that be Your will. Father, we pray that in the years You do give us, whatever those years may be, that we would honor You with our life as a slave, Father, to Christ, devoted to doing all He asks us to do and honoring Him, Father, with our spiritual service in the way we live. And Lord, the Word tonight is, is going to help us do that, I know. And I pray, Father, it would do that great work in us. Give us a heart, Father, to take those steps of obedience even in the face of turmoil and trial. And Father, as we have opportunity when a door is open to testify, let us walk through it boldly with that testimony, knowing that You will do the good work by Your Word. And we thank You, Father, for the night with the fellowship and all that You provided. May it continue into the weeks to come. And if it be Your will, may we be here to share in it. I give You thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, Amen.